races are too close to call in terms of polling. And so the only thing we've got left to figure out is how will the turnout be? Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup and coming in hot as always, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. Uh, He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC and always starts his morning with a big bowl of numbers. Our good friend, Mike Madrid. How are you doing this morning, Mike? I'm doing great. Bringing it in hot, hot, hot. (laughs) Also joining us, Al Cardenas. Al is a nationally recognized Cuban-American leader in law, business, and politics who served in the Reagan and H.W. Bush administrations. He's been recognized as one of the most influential people in Florida politics, and he's also a former chairman of the American Conservative Union and a two-term chairman of the Republican Party of Florida, Spoiler alert, he also endorsed his first Democrat just recently. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Al, it's great to see you. Good morning. Hey, good to see you, Ron. Also returning to the roundup, Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, among many, many other publications. And she's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of an excellent newsletter called GreatPower.us. Molly, it's great to see you again. Thanks for having me on, and apologies to everyone in advance for my slightly skunky voice today. I talked way too much yesterday. We are are just glad you're here. On this week's Roundup, first, we're going to discuss the updates in Putin's war in Ukraine and Kevin McCarthy's threats to cut aid if Republicans take back the House. Next up, we'll discuss the Pennsylvania and Nevada Senate races that are poised to determine which party controls the upper chamber of Congress. Then we'll discuss how some of the extremist groups that attacked the Capitol on January 6th are going local to intimidate voters in the midterms. And then finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to look to the food fight climate activism uh, that's been happening recently. And we're going to look a a little bit more closely at the voters who are naming climate change as a top issue heading into next month's midterms. Hint, they are probably not who you think and probably not for the reasons that you think. If you want to join us for that and a lot more, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you into our private ad-free version of the podcast where we publish additional conversations about strategy and analysis that we don't make available on the public show. There are two ways that you can get it. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcast app, you can navigate over to the Politicology show and tap the button that says try free. Or you can sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus. And we'll dig in right after this. There's been a lot of news about Ukraine on the domestic front. Uh, But before we get to that, earlier this week, Russia claimed that Ukraine was planning to use a dirty bomb on its own territory, according to the New York Times. Now, that's a conventional explosive that can spread radioactive material. Uh, That claim has been met with a lot of skepticism from Western countries who are noting that Russia often accuses other countries of doing what it plans to do. Um, Molly, before we dig into the the domestic politics around McCarthy and his comments, can you give us an overview of the state of the war uh, on the ground in Ukraine? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, on this dirty bomb thing, uh, what you said is right, which is Russia often sort of makes a lot of noise and waves its arms around and says, Ukraine's going to do the thing that we've been doing all along. Um, 
as a way to create pretext for an event when it might happen. But I would just also caution the, a, a, a big caution for people, which is um, they also use the same pattern of behavior uh, when it's not as a pretext for an action they're about to do, but when they just want to divert attention from other things. And in the same way Putin has been making these nuclear threats and it like sucks all the air out of the room and then everybody's focused on that and that's the only thing we're all talking about. Um, this The dirty bomb thing was the main thing driving disinformation and other discussion online this past week, right? So I think both of these patterns could be legitimate in terms of ways we've seen the Russians act before, but it could equally be they are doing this because now it is the thing we are talking about instead of the how do we help Ukraine, how do we help them win the war, how do we actually uh, look at the advances that have happened and help solidify those instead of what we've seen seeping in, which we'll talk about in a bit, which is this like, eh, maybe we need to find dialogue and ways to negotiate and end the war because this nuclear stuff is very scary. And like, again, I'm not minimizing that that the use of nuclear materials in conflict is very scary. Um, but I, I really think there needs to be this big caution about why Russia keeps bringing up this topic. It is absolutely false that the Ukrainians would spread nuclear debris in their own territory. Uh, Ukraine is still cleaning up the effects of Chernobyl and dealing with the impact of having had an actual nuclear or near nuclear disaster in their territory. Um, they have no interest in repeating this event in their own history with their own people. Uh, and it's just false that they would do this to themselves. Um, so I think that would be how I would contextualize this, is the, uh, the big caution of why Russia is talking about this right now. Okay, that's super helpful. Let's look at now uh, the Kevin McCarthy's recent comments. So last week, he told Punchbowl News that it would be more difficult to request aid for Ukraine from a Republican-controlled House. He said that Republicans wouldn't write a blank check to Ukraine. Democrats and the White House have downplayed the chances that a McCarthy-controlled House would uphold uh, that would hold up the aid. They've pointed to the broad bipartisan support for aid in both chambers. Um, Politico reported that, Bri that Biden aides believe McCarthy's going to blink um, and keep the funding going, even if it's at a lower rate. They think that Republicans would look at the political calculus and see a major blowback if they cut funding uh, and allowed Russia to come out victorious. Um, but you know, as as people have opined in uh, you know various newspapers, that is a uh, you know, arguably very naive position uh, to take, and I wonder what your what, what your take is on the on the vulnerability here. Um, you know, is cutting Ukraine funding something that Republican voters in twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four are going to punish? Um, Al, why don't you lead off, and then Mike? Well, you know, McCarthy is the uh, is the speaker. Obviously, he'll control the agenda of what goes on the floor. I doubt very much that he can get full Republican support for uh, downgrading or eliminating the aid to Ukraine. There's at least, you know, 20% of Republicans who view the communists as I do, as uh, and Putin in particular as a threat he is. I don't think he can get the votes he needs to prevail on cutting down the aid. Of course, you know, he his best bet is to manipulate what goes on the floor and what doesn't. But uh, but I don't think he's got enough Republican support if it goes on the floor to sustain that point of view. I think that point of view 
his politics before the elections in 22. I think he believes is a winning argument. I think he's wrong with respect to that, especially in the close races around the country that are more in the middle than on the far right. There are no close races in the far right. And so I don't understand the wisdom of that comment uh, on the 30 or so races that are up in the air at this point. Mike, this is what this made me think of, and I really uh, can't wait to hear your thoughts on this, given your, uh, you've known Kevin for a long time. I wonder if we might be underestimating the growing sort of authoritarian pro-Putin faction within the Republican Party, within his own caucus, because, you know, this isn't just a handful of, of you know, of the crazy members that that that, that the appetite for the pro-Putin, pro-Russia position is seems to be growing. And I wonder if we might be underestimating it a little bit and that the Biden administration might be underestimating that. I think we are underestimating um, how dangerous it could get for a couple of reasons. The first is, in terms of public opinion, the American people are still overwhelmingly pro-Ukraine uh, and anti-Russia. Maybe maybe the same thing, but for the for, for the moment, um, even a wide swath, a, a significant majority of Republicans are anti-Russia. You know, Russia. That, that that seems to be the one thing that has held over since the '80s Reagan era. Right? Is is the Republicans still? remember that they are supposed to be a bulwark against R- Russia right and this is this is not a good civilization this is not 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 a good group of of people in the world who are who have America's interests at heart that will be tested because you have to remember it's not just the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses who have openly said we're going to pull funding from Ukraine it's Tucker Carlson um, it's it's the mouthpiece of the Republican Party. It's it's and that that changes the dynamics considerably when this is placed at the forefront. And one of the challenges that Kevin McCarthy has is because the conference, the Republican conference, is not just split in two directions, which was kind of the Tea Party folks and the establishment folks, which meant which meant the undoing of both John Boehner and Paul Ryan. We now have a third element, right? This kind of MAGA caucus. And they're not the same. The Freedom Caucus is not the MAGA Caucus, is not the establishment. What that means is Kevin's going to be doing a lot of following. He's not going to be doing a lot of leading if he wants to remain speaker. And so for him to have to lead, which he would have to do, he would have to lead this group towards a place where we would continue uh, financially uh, and through weaponry um, supporting Ukraine. And look, I think think, um, there's a chance that that we, we begin that way. But I'm not too sure how how long the runway is for that, how long the appetite will be as the voices within the Republican conference start to get more belligerent, more bellicose, and more demanding that we start this, you know, continue this America first policy and quit spending billions of dollars in Ukraine and start spending it on whatever they claim the domestic priorities are going to be. That's that's that message will work on Fox News. It will impact public opinion. We haven't heard much of it at this point because there are so many issues before it. But when Kevin McCarthy actually has to start whipping votes, um, Al is right. You know, if you if you have twenty or thirty percent of the conference that's going to remain, that establishment wing is going to remain very anti-Russia, very pro-Ukraine. You're talking about a Speaker McCarthy putting up. Um, a you know majority of Democrats with a minority of Republicans to continue funding, that's not a good place to be. That's a really bad place to be for a, a Republican speaker, a Republican leader, 
Um, that was why the Hassert rule was was put into effect. You you couldn't bring up a minority of your own caucus to vote with a majority of the Democrats to get something done. Um, and, and McCarthy is as as delicate as his leadership is likely to be. I think I think you're going to see a very significant change on support for Ukraine and a lot more Russian talking points coming through the megaphones of the right wing media ecosystem. And of course, we haven't talked about the 800 pound gorilla in the room, and that is whether Donald Trump runs for uh, for the nomination of the party. If he runs for the nomination of the party, uh, our assistance to Ukraine is really in trouble uh, because uh, he'll be against it. He'll be uh, he may even meet with Putin during this conflict mm. uh, to try to take credit for uh, for something. Uh, who knows what at this point. And so, uh, Mike, I think if Donald Trump's a candidate, all bets are off as to what the House Republicans will do. And I'm very concerned about it. I think if our country, uh, if our country stops giving Ukraine what it needs to prevail, it's probably the worst political disaster that we've had since World War II. Because you've got Serbia, you've got Belarus, uh, Putin is lighting the fire on a lot of uh, countries. Yeah, I think what you just said is important. It doesn't mean he like he doesn't have to be in office. He just has to run. He can do this from the campaign trail and have a transforming uh, effect on on the on the narrative within the Republican within the Republican Party. So Liz Cheney discussed uh, McCarthy's comments on Meet the Press this past Sunday. Here's what she had to say. Let's talk about a speaker, Kevin McCarthy. You clearly think this is a, a mistake, uh, that he will, uh, you, you are concerned about his speakership. What specifically concerns you? Well, look, the speaker is second in line to the presidency. And at every moment uh, since, frankly, the aftermath of the election in 2020, uh, when uh, Minority Leader McCarthy has had the opportunity to do the right thing or do something that serves his own political purpose, he always chooses to serve his own political purpose. And, you know, that extends to what we've seen just in the last few days with these comments about uh, aid to Ukraine, the idea that somehow the party is now no longer going to support the Ukrainian people, which, you know, for somebody who has a picture of Ronald Reagan on the the wall of his office in the Capitol, uh, the notion that now Kevin McCarthy is going to make himself the leader of the pro-Putin wing of my party is just a stunning thing. Uh, it's dangerous. He knows better. But the fact that he's willing to go down the path of suggesting that America will no longer stand for freedom, mm -hmm. I think, tells you he's willing to sacrifice everything for his own political gain. So, Molly, listening to Cheney, how concerned are you that McCarthy is going to roll over and cave to the, to the pro-Putin MAGA wing? And, uh, you know, she makes the stakes of this really clear. America's willingness to support Ukraine will be seen as the determinant of, of whether America still stands for freedom. So I wonder how you think about the global impact if America doesn't live up to that. Uh, she's absolutely right. If we don't continue to support Ukraine, it means we're no longer supporting freedom in the world. This is the forefront of where we still get to claim we are defending freedom. There's a lot of other things we should be paying lots more attention to, but this is the place where we are, where our support is absolutely critical, um, regardless everything everyone else is doing. And there are plenty of countries, especially the Baltic states and Poland, that are doing um, an absolute ton for Ukraine. Uh, without U.S. munitions, um, the war will not continue the way that it has been going, and that would be bad for Ukraine. So we need to continue to 
provide the support because, again, the Ukrainians are fighting our war for us. They are the front line of defense for Europe, uh, the front line of defense against Russia. Um, and if we think this isn't important to us, then everybody who seems to be saying that needs to be significantly grilled about why it is that they believe Russia is not a threat to us in this context. Um, I think the point that my colleagues here have been making in a nicer way than me, because uh, I think they still have to work with these people sometimes, um, <clears throat> is, you know, like John Boehner spent his life trying to be speaker. Uh, and then when he got there, it was like, but I didn't want to have to do it the hard way. I'm going to retire and go represent pot and drink wine. And he's having a great time. And then Paul Ryan, who didn't want to take over that job with the kooks who had taken over his party, took it for as little time as possible and could not wait to get the F out of there. Uh, and I think McCarthy will be an even weaker version of those two weak versions of the speakership. Um, it's very clear uh, he is not going to stand up and make a statement ever being out front, knowing he doesn't have the support of people in the caucus, whatever that might be. It is no longer one caucus. I think that is clear. It's like four separate groups, the quietest one of which is the least crazy. Um, and I think that's a really hard dynamic. I mean, I don't even know how you run the domestic side of politics in that house, let alone all the foreign and defense policy, which really requires strong whipping. Like, these are never easy or, or simple issues to, to muster votes on. Um, it requires strong party leadership when it's a big expenditure, when it's about something overseas, and when it's about something that people have to really be on side for to sell to their constituents. Um, and there's just none of that in this caucus. And Kevin McCarthy has like never made a clear or backbone-filled statement on anything to do with Russia or Ukraine in the past five years. So I think there is significant concern here. Our friends overseas are watching this. Um, they see, I mean, they watch our domestic politics with such a fine-tooth comb that it's just sad to me that, that this is where we are and the, the nervousness about everything every day. Um, uh, I think that, I don't think there would be, from what I'm seeing so far, I don't think there would be a strong switch like the day after the new house comes in, right? Because again, that would require leadership to say, we're not going to do this anymore. It will be this drift. There'll be every one of the votes has had less Republicans supporting it. And I think it will be that continued drift. Every vote on Ukraine will have less, less Republican support until it comes to kind of a head. <clears throat> but that's not a great place to be in. Um, at literally the most critical phase of the war, which will be the next three, four months in Ukraine. Um, for the sake of time, I think we should actually bookmark this, Mike and Al, but I wanted to get at a question about, um, you know, whether and how Democrats should be thinking about picking up voters if they take on a more pro-freedom plank to the to the party platform, right? Given that Republicans seem interested in abdicating that role that has worked for so long. Molly, before we wrap it, I'd love to end with some really good news that I'm excited for you to share, uh, because the last time you were on a couple of weeks ago... Uh, we were talking about the fundraiser uh, that you're running to support AFU Stratcom. Can you give our, uh, our our dear politicology family an update on how that's going? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to give giant, I wish my voice was better, hugs to the entire politicology community. You guys have been such strong supporters of this and have really come out strong in support of the fundraiser. Um, it's very clear to me that a lot of it is from here. So I really wanted to give you guys a special thanks and like, 
I want to thank every person who gave $5 or $10, because I know if you did that, it meant you care enough to do it and probably wanted to give more, but can't. And I understand that. Um, but there are a lot of people who gave significantly more than that. And that just says a lot to me about the people who are listening to this and how they understand on all levels, like we have to do what we can uh, as individuals, uh, not just to observe the war on Twitter, but to be engaged and do what we can. Um, we're almost to our funding goal. I have a living room full of coats and things that I'm getting ready to vacuum pack into duffel bags and, and try to take over to Ukraine in the next week. Um, if you haven't contributed and uh, are still willing to, we'll put the link, I think, in the show notes again. Um, there's only a couple thousand dollars left to our goal, and that will help with some of the transport costs uh, as we get the stuff over there and, and some of the final gear requirements. Um, but really, you guys, thank you so much for doing this. Um, it will help critical unit of the Ukrainian defenders have a warmer couple of months, which is important since Putin is blowing up all the power stations. Um, but really, thank you, Politicology community, um, for your support on this. Um, couldn't have done it without you guys. Okay, we've got two tight Senate races that are getting tighter, and they are poised to determine which party controls the Senate. We talked about both of these on our State of the Vote episode on, on Tuesday. So going into the election, in order to gain control, Republicans need to defend their vulnerable seats in Wisconsin, Ohio, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and they need to flip a democratically controlled seat uh, and their best chances are in Arizona, Georgia, or Nevada. There's an outside chance that a Republican could win Colorado or New Hampshire. Uh, when we spoke with our friends at Decision Desk HQ for our State of the Vote episode this week, the Pennsylvania and Nevada races were both toss-ups. Republicans would need to win both uh, Pennsylvania and Nevada races to take control of the Senate. Uh, since the vice president breaks a tie in an evenly divided Senate, Democrats would retain control unless Republicans win both. So. Let's start with Pennsylvania. Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and Dr. Oz had their only debate on Tuesday night. There's been a lot of chatter from that debate. Uh, Republicans and Democrats voiced their concern uh, alike about Fetterman's performance and the lingering auditory processing and speech issues that he has following his May stroke. There were very clear instances during the debate where Fetterman struggled to find words, where words were mixed together. Here's a clip of his opening statement. And let's also talk about the elephant in the room. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate, mush two words together, but it knocked me down, but I'm going to keep coming back up. And this campaign is all about, to me, is about fighting for everyone in Pennsylvania that ever got knocked down that needs to get back up and fighting for all forgotten communities all across Pennsylvania that also got knocked down that needs to keep get back up. While Fetterman's performance uh, received a lot of negative feedback in the national media, CNN spoke with several Fetterman voters who all reaffirmed their support for him after the debate. Uh, Fetterman's campaign said it raised over a million dollars in the three hours after the debate and over $2 million in less than 24 hours. Uh, a veteran Democratic campaign strategist uh, told NBC News that Fetterman shouldn't have debated and that it may have tanked his campaign. Uh, another told NBC that if they were calling the shots, they'd be moving money out of Pennsylvania and into Ohio. 
Uh, Brooke Hatfield, the associate director for the American Speech Language Hearing Association, spoke with NBC News after the debate, and uh, and she said that his performance should not surprise anyone familiar with stroke recovery, uh, and did stress that his struggles with words uh, is not indicative of cognitive impairment. Uh, so, Mike, I want to start with you. This was a midterm Senate debate, right? And as and as those go, um, normally they're not a very big deal, and they certainly don't make national news, right? Uh, but the stroke caused a lot of interest in this debate going into it. And I wonder, you know, normally a debate like this wouldn't really impact undecided voters, except, uh, except to the extent that there are, you know, big moments that get pushed out and amplified afterwards. So I wonder, you know, A, are, are undecided voters likely to have watched because of the circumstances? And B, do you think it's going to matter to them? No, not a, not a whole lot of undecided voters are watching debates. Debates tend to not make much of an impact on the outcomes of races. They have not for a very, very long time. We kind of still do them as a vestige of, I guess, a, a, a mythological, you know, Stephen Douglas uh, decorum. Yeah, Lincoln debate. You know, where you know we 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 still hold up the pretense that in American campaigns we're still discussing ideas and debating the exchange of ideas, and that there's a wide swath of people who are truly chewing on whether or not somebody's got better ideas than the other. Um, the, the truth is those days are long, long gone. Look at just two weeks ago with Herschel Walker. You had the same basic dynamic uh, where Herschel Walker makes kind of a fool of himself, um, holding up a fake badge and thinking that he's actually in law enforcement. Um, he raises millions of dollars within the next 24 hours as his base rallies to support him. You see a slight drop in the polls that comes back within 72 hours. We are in far too partisan a climate to have these types of things make much of a difference. They're not just races in either Georgia or Pennsylvania. The voters in these states know that this is about control of the federal government at the Senate level. They're responding accordingly, and they're going to look past on both sides, both Republicans and Democrats will look past the weaknesses of their candidates, real or perceived, um, all the way up to basically any anything you can kind of throw at a candidate at this point is really baked in into the negative partisanship environment that we have. So I think you may see a couple of polls that show a small drop, but I think by election time, it will pop right back up into its standard um, trajectory. And I don't think this affected the race one bit. So, Al, in the debate, Dr. Oz, uh, who Fetterman is running against, the Republican, was asked about his views on abortion rights. Here's what he had to say. As a physician, I've been in the room when there's some difficult conversations happening. I don't want the federal government involved with that at all. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. And then the Fetterman campaign did pledge to turn that clip of Oz into an ad. Here's their team's rapid response. Should abortion be banned in America? I want women, doctors, local political leaders. I want women, doctors, local political leaders. What did he say? Local political leaders. Local political leaders. Local political leaders. So, so Al, it's 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 worth noting for our listeners here, reminding them that one of those local elected officials, local political leaders, could be the Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, uh, who said ending abortion rights was the single most important issue of our lifetime. So, I wonder, 
you know, given all the heat around abortion and the Dobbs decision, what impact do you think this could have on the race? Yeah, well, look, uh, people ask me, who do you think suffered the most rather than uh, who gained the most from the debate, right? And uh, and obviously, Fetterman, I thought, did the right thing at the beginning by saying, hey, you're going to listen to a guy with uh, after a stroke, basically. And uh, and I think most of it uh, came out okay. Uh, I thought uh, Dr. Ross had a bigger problem after the debate with that comment. I mean, you can listen, you can think of what every woman in America thinks that they've got to knock on the door of a local elected official to get a say on the abortion issue. To them, that's just unimaginable. I mean, most of them have very low, most people have very low thoughts or about uh, their local elected officials. Uh, to think that you've got to knock on the door, which is what people are thinking, to figure out what a local official has to say, it's just fa- unfathomable. And so uh, here's the bad news, I thought, is that now, you know, when, when we used to cover debates, Ron, it was all local media from the state that covered a debate that was only listened to by voters in a debate in that particular state. Now these debates are being listened to by everybody in America, all 50 states, uh, which was a case with Walker's, which was a case with Dr. Ross's. And so that answer resonates nationally about the local elected officials, not just in Pennsylvania. What I don't understand that I would like Mike to give some clarity to this is the following. I don't know of any particular event of such consequence that has changed the numbers, generic numbers like they have in the last two weeks. I thought, frankly, three weeks ago that all the momentum was on the red side. And now for the last week or so, I've seen a a significant change in the generic vote uh, heading towards the blue uh, without reasons that I understand. And the reason I'm bringing that up is I think in the two states that you mentioned, turnout will decide the outcome, as it always does in a two-point race. And so how will the turnout decide the outcomes in these two states will be indicative maybe of the rest of the country, but certainly in those two states. Races are too close to call in terms of polling. And so the only thing we've got left to figure out is how will the turnout be? Well, I mean, look, it's it's. I think we're seeing so much divergent data, not just in those two states, Al, but really, if you look at Nevada, if you look at Arizona, if you look at a lot of these states, Wisconsin, a lot of these states are right there within the margin of error. And the generic ballot has been bouncing around in a way that I've never seen before for a plus Democrat or, or plus Republican within a matter of days of each other. That's not normal behavior for a trajectory on the generic ballot. Um, and so there's a lot of data pointing in a lot of different directions. And when that happens, I don't think we're less, as they say in the military, if you've got a map and it doesn't match the terrain, you throw out the map and you follow the terrain because that's what's real. And that's when I say you got to follow the fundamentals of the race. I still think that the trajectory for the midterms benefits the Republicans, but there's no question that something has changed the voter model to make the Democrats far, far more competitive than they should be in a year when 70% plus of voters say the country's heading in the wrong direction and have significant economic concerns and, and are concerned about crime and immigration more so than the issue set that Democrats are leading into. Um, Democrats' support levels have held up remarkably, remarkably well. 
Joe Biden's numbers have surged in the past four, five, six weeks. Um, so it's hard It's hard to discern. I just think we're going to have very high turnout. I think it'll be, if not record high, very close to record high turnout. I think we're entering an era and time of very high turnout elections because people realize what's at stake. It's all very serious. They know that democracy itself is on the ballot, regardless of which side you're on. And people, are, they're scared and they're angry and they're mobilized and they're going to be showing up to vote. And I think that for the next decade or so, we're going to be um, in a position where just a handful of voters across a couple key precincts in some of these states are going to determine the balance of power for the rest of us. Yeah, well, well said. Uh, I don't, you know, follow what's going on in the other states, but I follow what's going on in Florida. And it seems based on early voting and ballot, early ballot turnout, that we will have a turnout in Florida, I believe, between the 18th, which is a very high non-presidential election year turnout, and 2020, which is a huge turnout. It seems like this particular election cycle, Mike, will be right between those two, which is a pretty high turnout for a non-presidential election year. And so one of the things that we speculate is which party will be favored by a high turnout. In the early days, Republicans were favored by a low turnout and Democrats by high turnout. But, you know, I discard all those things now just because so many things are unexplainable that we're, as you say, we're a new terrain. And, uh, and we'll see how that turns out. And Ron, can so, I maybe, can I maybe yeah, please just add one thing as Jump the, in. As the only woman on this week on yeah. all of this abortion stuff, which is being discussed in such extremely polarized terms, I think by both sides, I actually think there's like an enormous space where there is opportunity that no one is speaking to. And this would obviously have to come from the democratic side, but um, conservative women are really like inside this permission structure they've given themselves where they get to look at this as, I'm pro-life, so I don't care about any of these really crazy, creepy laws that are being passed because I'm pro-life. And they haven't had to confront the fact that underpinning many of the new anti-abortion laws, the new restrictions, has nothing to do with abortion. It has to do with restricting women's rights. And like literally defining personhood for women in this country as less. This is not a political issue. I've spent a ton of my life on, obviously, uh, I think in most of the world, it is not something that is used in this way. Um, uh, and so it's sort of like shocking for me to always see this continue to be this driving force for so much politics in this country. But this thing where conservative women are not being confronted with the fact that they are supporting laws that make them less of a citizen is really a space where they need to have this shoved in their faces before it becomes more of an issue for their daughters who absolutely will care about this more than they do. And before more women in this country are dying because they have to be put in an ambulance and sent 700 miles to some other hospital where some doctor with courage will actually give them the drug that they need to save their life because it may or may not qualify as an anti-abortion drug. And if you give them this thing to stop their hemorrhaging, you know, and save their baby's life or save their life, it may qualify as violating whatever crazy, stupid law some local politician has written about this issue. It is redefining the rights of an entire gender in this country. Uh, it's something that deserves a lot more attention, and I'm really surprised that there has not been more Democratic side ranting about this. Especially with that frame. I totally agree. Well said. The other big Senate race I want to look at uh, this week is Nevada, my home state. 
Uh, I'm going to say Nevada, Nevada, Nevada a few times until people stop saying Nevada. Uh, in our state of the vote episode this week, Kyle Williams from DDHQ noted that for the first time, they have Republican challenger Adam Laxalt with an advantage over uh, Catherine Cortez Masto. She's the Democratic incumbent. Uh, so Cortez Masto is the first Latina senator, and Latinos make up a big part of the electorate in Nevada, about 20% of eligible voters. Uh, that's according to Pew. Uh, research center. So movement among Latinos has been pretty closely watched in this race. Um, the thing, thing you got you to understand about Adam Laxalt, though, is his name it, it sort of carries a legacy with it because is uh, he's the son of uh, former uh, New Mexico U.S. Senator Pete Domenici. His grandpa was a U.S. Senator and a governor in Nevada. You know, I went to school in Nevada. There's There are theaters, buildings named after Paul Laxalt, Senator Governor Paul Laxalt. So um, so he's, he's, uh, he's got a, he's got, he's writing on his name to, to a great extent. Uh, and also who's the attorney general. Uh, but Mike, you'll love this. The Washington post ran a column this week with the headline, no Latinos aren't abandoning the democratic party. Uh, so there was a Univision poll out on Tuesday that showed Cortez Masto with a 33 point lead among Latinos. And that erosion among Latino voters could be due to the frustration with the majority party, which is obviously not uncommon in midterms, uh, or economic anxiety. Uh, the poll has 60% of registered Latino voters saying that they plan to cut, uh, that they plan to vote for Cortez Masto. And 33 points is a big lead, but according to the Nevada Independent, Cortez Masto won just under 90% of votes from Latinos, Nevada Latinos in 2016. So there's this, um, I want to really drill this point home and you're going to do it better than I can, but the, the hopium that if you are a Democrat, you are hearing from many Democratic talking heads is that Democrats are winning Latinos. And the reason that talking point is so pernicious is because it's it's kind of a beautiful lie, right? Because it is technically true, but directionally it is false. For example, like she she has taken a 30-point hit on support among Latino voters. That is massive. So whenever you hear Democrats say Democrats are winning with Latinos, you need to scratch that just a little bit, scratch beneath the surface, and you will realize that's actually, that's intentionally misleading. So um, so I want you to sort of break down how significant that shift is over six years and really, you know, underline why this can be a problem for Democrats, even if they, you know, continue winning votes from Latinos by a sizable margin. So I actually think Nevada is the um, most important state um, up this year, this election cycle, not just because it will probably determine the balance of power between the two parties, but because the outcome of what you are saying and talking about will determine the balance of power in future Congresses for probably the next 10, 15, to 20 years. Let me explain why. The Latino vote in, in Nevada um, is shifting. It is moving to the right. And there's really, by the way, the Southwestern Latino vote here, the Hispanic vote nationally, um, it's all Mexican-American, overwhelmingly Mexican-American. 60% of Hispanics in the United States are Mexican-American. And so when you look at Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, California, Nevada, that's all Mexican-American vote. And the question that people are going to be asking themselves is, are, are Mexican-American voters going to be voting the way they have in California, which is 75% Democrat, 25% Republican for the past 30 years, 
Or are they going to start voting more like Texas Mexican-Americans, which are more like, uh, you know, 60-40, 60% Democrat, 40% Republicans? Nobody's suggesting that Republicans are going to get over half of the Mexican-American vote this election cycle, probably anywhere, certainly not in the next few election cycles. But to your point, they don't have to. And it is it has become this beautiful lie that the Democrats are telling themselves is because they're like, well, look, we're still winning 75, you know, I mean, 65, 35. We're still winning 60, 40. But those margins have dramatically collapsed over the past four or six years. And there's no indication that they will stop or that they will slow. Now, they may. They may in 2022. You may see. Um, you know, uh, um, Cortez Masto, um, you'll get fall back to that same 2016 number. It's highly unlikely. But even if she did, that doesn't mean that the long term trajectory isn't moving towards a realignment position. Realignments don't happen overnight. They don't happen in one or two election cycles. They happen over decades. And when you take a step back, like you just said, and look at the 2016 numbers compared to the 2022 numbers and what she's pulling at, this is a seismic shift. It's not a small shift. It's extremely significant. It's very big and it's measurable all over the country, especially we're seeing especially pronounced, not just with the Cuban-American vote in Miami-Dade uh, and South Florida, but even throughout the Southwest now. And, and Republicans don't have to win 50%. They just have to close those margins enough. And in most of the polling, they're closing the gap considerably. Now, I think the truth is probably somewhere between the Univision poll and um, and some of the other Washington Post polls that you saw, um, where I don't think we're going to see a massive you know Republican rightward shift. I think we're probably going to see another one or two points, maybe three, um, or maybe maybe it stands still. But that doesn't mean that it isn't what is happening isn't significant, and it is beyond frustrating to see people almost all exclusively from inside the Beltway who've never worked with the community, claiming to be experts and using this really, really bad math to say, no, there's no problem at all. In fact, we're doing better than we've ever done with Hispanics because the pie is getting bigger, for example. That's not the way, that's not the way electoral math works. And it's, it's dangerous. And what it's doing is it's preventing the Democratic Party from making the adjustments that it has to make in order to remain competitive. And if they don't figure it out this election cycle, and if, if they lose, if the Democrats lose Nevada, if they lose in Arizona, if they lose again in Texas, there's going to be a very significant reckoning where the entire Democratic Party is going to have to be confront the largest demographic change in probably 200 years in this country. Um, and they're going to have to figure it out really, really quick before the 2024 election cycle. I have not seen any indication that they're making the adjustment that they're, they're interested in making the adjustment or that they're aware of how significant the consequences are of this shift going forward. Al, I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, on, I, yeah. Uh, my thoughts are there's one thing we don't talk about in terms of this demographic change, and that's the economy. Uh, Wells Fargo did a eye-opening study on the economics of the Hispanic community, right? The, 848, the 48 million Hispanics, uh, legal, legally uh, documented, and the 12 to 15 million Hispanics were not documented. And the study showed what an incredible uh, progression economically Hispanics have had between 2010 
and 2020. Those are the 10-year demographics that they showed. 50% of the jobs, for example, created in America, new jobs, came from the Hispanic community. Most of them came from new Hispanic small entrepreneurs who entered the who entered the market. The amounts of savings from Hispanics tripled. Uh, the uh, GNP in the Hispanic community is two times what it is in America as a whole. There's a whole growing class of Hispanic uh, middle class that we don't take into account. The Democrat playbook, and these are all friends of mine, Democrat playbook continues co uh, consists of strategists talking to leaders in the nonprofit uh, communities who are still about social justice and civil rights, all of which I support. But these issues are no longer the priority of the Hispanic community as a whole. The economic issues, taxes, education, those are the issues that are now the priority in the Hispanic community. And yet Democrats feel like they need to treat the Hispanic community strategy like they do in the black community, where some of these issues are still much more significant. And those voices for social justice are that much louder, regardless of your economic status. You could be a black middle class person, but social justice to you is still the number one issue. Interestingly enough, that's not the case in the Hispanic community, but Democrats are using the same playbook and it's hurting them dearly. They have not learned to adjust to the reality of Hispanic middle class and what issues they're concerned about. And that's within the Hispanic community, the largest voting group there is. And I attribute the change, not because Republicans have gotten a lot smarter, not because Donald Trump was attractive, just because the issues that attract the Hispanic voter in America has shifted during the last decade and Democrats have not made an adjustment. It's just a, a, a horrible mistake and miscalculation. Uh, and uh, and the voices that get closer to the president and to other leaders, you know, are the voices of personal friends of mine who are still rightfully so concerned about social justice, the infractions in social justice issues, civil rights, but it's not the issue that registered the most amongst the Hispanic middle class. And, and Nevada has got one more issue, uh, uh, Mike, that's even more, you know, more difficult for the incumbent, and that is a large Mormon population that's actually concerned on the abortion issue. And so that that community, the Mormon Hispanic community, which is very large, uh, they're Mexican-Americans, but they're also of the Mormon faith. And and their and their concerns about abortion are a bit different than the national concerns are. So a lot of complications in Nevada. Having said that, I think that the blue, uh, you know, the generic vote for the blues have also improved for the incumbent in Nevada. And I wouldn't be surprised if the winner of that race, again, is based on turnout. Yeah, I mean, Nevada's a, Nevada's a pro-choice state. It's, a, it, it's organized labor is a big force there. Um, I think this is going to be a big, I think you're right, Mike, it's a, this is the one to watch. And, and also, to the, to the point both of you are making, I just want to bookmark for our listeners, if you want to go deep on this demographic transformation, including the Democratic Party's approach to the Latino community, um, you should go listen to the really wonderful conversation that we had, uh, Mike, you and Rui Teixeira 
long time sort of legendary Democratic pollster and um, Scott Tranter, a uh, you know practitioner, pollster, modeler, data scientist we've both worked with. Um, uh, we'll we'll put a, a link to that in the in the show notes in case you missed that, folks. Okay, this week, the U.S. Conference of Mayors held an event warning of decentralized election interference efforts targeting voters, candidates, and election workers. This is all according to Axios. So Mary McCord, executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, she's also a former Justice Department prosecutor, warned that organizations like the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters have dismantled their national organizations in favor of having state chapters. And she warned that there are similar threats that officials have faced as they did in 2020, but they're now coming from more localized movements. So in Pennsylvania, elections chiefs in 50 of the 67 counties have left because of threats and harassment and intimidation. A Republican candidate in Idaho was hung in effigy in his yard. A Democratic candidate in Eastern Washington was shot with a BB gun while putting up signs. So one tactic for extremists has been to sign up as poll watchers and poll workers. Now, uh, there's one proud boy who worked at the polls in Miami in an August primary. Uh, he urged other members to do the same during the midterms. He said, we need to be at every polling station this November and have eyes and truth-telling patriots monitoring on the ground, according to McCord. Now, truth-telling patriots obviously is a bit much, but uh, but poll watchers, here's the thing you need to understand, uh, folks, because you're going to see a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of stuff about, you know, the extremist poll watchers. Poll watchers do and have historically played an important role in elections infrastructure. They're volunteers. Uh, they're usually well-trained observers. They can be valuable in spotting potential problems. Our, our good friend David Becker used the example of noticing long lines and alerting an election official. Uh, in his new book with Major Garrett. So having observers is a valuable part of election transparency, but that's something entirely different than trying to use poll watching as an opportunity for mortal combat, as the as the Proud Boys are, according to McCord. In Arizona, there are multiple reports of voter intimidation, uh, including one claiming armed camo-clad people <laughs> were taking pictures of a drop box in Mesa County. Another complaint alleged that a voter was filmed and accused of being a mule while dropping off their ballot outside Maricopa County election headquarters. Local leaders and elections officials are planning for the increased pressure. Some elections offices are installing bulletproof glass, uh, if you can believe that, adding security measures and conducting active shooter trainings. Um, There's a former police chief in Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia, uh, an advisor to the U.S. Conference of Mayors. He's urging 911 dispatchers to prioritize calls from polling places. So Molly, I want to lead with you here uh, first. I want to what your reaction is to the increase uh, in intimidation at the polls, and 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 how can the you know lack of faith in elections and intimidation uh, really shape the future of American democracy? I mean, every time I hear one of these conversations in the last five years, it really just makes me want to barf because it's the stuff that those of us working overseas have had to become fluent in when describing problems in foreign elections in places where there's quote unquote transitional democracies, right? Like places like Albania, where the intimidation at the polls is is your your poll watchers are your thugs who stand outside and make lists of people who are voting so they can go and intimidate people later. 
Um, similar tactics were used in Georgia uh, from all parties in various points. Um, but this idea of the people, the poll watchers, quote unquote, were actually sort of like tracking movements more than being helpful. Um, <clears throat> but I think the the localization of intimidation and violence or plans for violence is really problematic. And the best example I can give you is how Georgian democracy unraveled after the election in 2012. Um, where Georgia the country. Uh, Georgia the country, yes, not Georgia the state. Um, when this Russian-made oligarch uh, and his party took over the government after the parliamentary elections, and the whole election campaign was you know, fraught with accusations of pending violence, of, you know, actual violence. It was not a great <coughs> landscape, and I'm happy to discuss that more with people if they ever care. But afterward, the, the key thing being that this very, you know, problematic faction that had a patina of good legitimate politicians on the top and then a whole bunch of thugs and weird sportsmen and other things underneath uh, including xenophobes and the openly pro-Russian guys and a bunch of other things, um, the the local elections were off cycle from the national elections in Georgia, which meant the city councils, the municipal councils had already been elected the year before. <clears throat> and after the elections, the national elections, when this new party took over, they used local gangs that were primarily people they had let out of prison and started paying as quote-unquote activists um, but they used local mobs to um, surround, intimidate, harass all of the local municipal councils. So they couldn't do their jobs uh, until basically all the people either quit or were like physically removed, beaten, taken from buildings. And 85% of the local councils were changed by force over the next seven months after the national election, while no one of the international community said anything because they were trying to make friends with this new party, blah, blah, blah. But it was such a smart way to normalize the use and the return of political violence in Georgia in a way that it had not been used since the Rose Revolution, um, which was you start at these very local levels. Nobody really understands what's going on. Everybody assumes there's like a local reason. It's like some brothers or cousins fighting or whatever. Uh, nobody wants to get in the middle of it. And then all of a sudden it's everywhere. And then all of a sudden it's actually been effective to use political violence. And then there's no way to change this as the standard. And everybody starts thinking, this is the only way that you can do this. This is a new environment we have to operate in. And I just, I see so many signs of that thinking happening in this country in the past five, four or five years, obviously being driven by actions on the right. Um, the increased use of and dialogue of political violence in very overt ways, which we all know. Um, but then people on the left thinking, this is the reality we live in. What is our response to this? And it's really sort of making this dynamic where trust-based elections, which is what America has run on forever, uh, even when we shouldn't have had as much trust in the process as we did, um, it has really fallen apart. And uh, I think on both sides, there's this assumption of lack of trust, which is leading to the use of violence and physical intimidation at the polls in ways we haven't seen in decades, and uh, or at least not at scale in decades. And seeing Republican-aligned groups, um, they're not, I mean, whether you actually want to call them Republicans, who knows, but seeing Republican-aligned groups organized this way, clearly adopting what is a foreign tactic of intimidation in terms of the playbooks they're using, should really unnerve us. And we need to look at this very seriously because that's where you start losing 
the bedrock of democracy in ways that is very hard to restore. Yeah, Mike and Al, with God, with that sobering context, right? Um, I wonder what your reaction is to this, and 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 sort of uh, maybe to bring the sort of temporal lens to you know right now, the next several weeks. Do you think that um, increased news coverage, especially around uh, the 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 extremists who are sort of you know. Uh, decking out in their in their camo and their some of them are bringing guns uh, legally, but they're bringing guns and sort of intimidation tactics. Do you think that just the coverage of that may have a, a depressive uh, effect on on turnout on people who are actually willing to show up and go to the polls and deal with what has become a spectacle um, at, at at those places? And what happens what happens actually if this escalates? Right? If you now have if you if you have um, uh, sort of counter programming by other people like what happens next what is the next right step here well look in my opinion uh those responsible for seeing to it that intimidation stops and their consequences for intimidation and violence is law enforcement and so the question you have to ask all these sheriffs around the country and i hope the national media does what are you doing about this intimidation and, and what has happened? Uh, we just had an incident in Miami where a canvasser hired and paid for by the Rubio campaign was actually a nationalist, uh, you know, one of these Christian nationalists who participated in Charleston, had committed violent crimes and was on probation. And there he was. He got in a fist fight with someone else in Hialeah canvassing. Now, think about the average voter. If somebody's going to knock on my door on behalf of a campaign, do I really want to know that these proud boys and and nationalists and everybody else are being hired by campaigns to knock on my door? That's what this guy was doing. I mean, it's a consequence when somebody's actually on the loose. Forget the polls. Somebody's on the loose knocking on your door and you have an opposing point of view. Who the heck wants to be subjected to violence from a criminal like this? But, uh, you know, in my community, there are people like him and others who are being hired to be canvassers because they know that not only will they canvass, but they'll also intimidate. Now, in Hialeah, you know, the mayor and uh, some other people are very close to Senator Rubio. I doubt that anything is going to happen to this canvasser. As a matter of fact, the person he got in a fight with in front of that person's home, that person got charged, but not the canvasser. And so, you know, a lot of how you stop this thing has to do with law enforcement. And law enforcement needs to be shamed by the national press if they don't act on this, because otherwise we're really on a downslope of violence uh, as a recurring factor in all of our neighborhoods. Mike, closing thoughts? Yeah, I, I um, you know, I always look back kind of historically in this country's history to try to find a time where we are witnessing kind of some of the things that we are witnessing as a way to kind of comfort myself to say, maybe if we've been through this before, we'll be okay. The time period between 1865 and 1915 was is called the age of acrimony, where the environment was very, very similar to what we're seeing right now. A lot of political violence, intimidation at polling places extremely high turnouts. There were three political assassinations of presidents during that period of time, including Lincoln's. 
Um, so, you know, for better or for worse, we have been through demo – American democracy has been through similar times. But I don't want to suggest to anybody that this is going to be a quick fix. I do believe this is going to last for a while. We're going through an extraordinary demographic change. We're going through extraordinary economic change. We're going through extraordinary technological disruption. Any one of those would be really tough for a society to swallow and, and meld into. We're dealing with all three at the same time. And so there's going to be disruption, and unfortunately, there will be violence. I don't believe that that's going to have a depressive effect on turnout. I think it will actually spur greater engagement, and that's the hope. That's always the hope. I know sometimes I sound very pessimistic. I'm not. I'm very optimistic because it's through that challenge. It's through that struggle. It's through that pushback that we define and protect the American character going forward for the next generation. And that's what I see happening. I see people rising up. There will be setbacks. There will be losses. There will be shocking uh, things that happen that we do not expect to see in the United States of America, but we are going to see them. And we're going to have to push through and rise up and be a better people. And I'm confident that we will. Thank you um, for some hope. All right. Thank you. Do you have... Do you, do you have any advice for listeners who might want to, you know, get involved? Like, like, uh, would you recommend somebody become a poll watcher now? I, I would. Uh, Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Yeah. What we're dealing with is a concerted effort of an extremist minority who is doing this on purpose. Again, when you look at Steve Bannon and the whole idea of him being a Leninist, what he's talking about is getting 30% of the population agitated enough to destroy the institutions. That means 70% of us don't want that. And just sheer numbers protects the system. Sheer numbers of people saying, no, I support decent, fair elections. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to be engaged in my, my society, my democracy, not only has the intended effect of protecting that specific election, it adds to the civic virtue that we've been desperately missing as a country. So don't look. Don't look towards the minority extremists to say, this is big. It's getting bigger. It may be. It's certainly bigger than we've seen in most of our lifetimes. But two out of three of us, double, literally double of those that are committed to that strategy are, are committed to preserving and protecting the system. The only way they win is if we don't get engaged. So, yes, absolutely get engaged. Be supportive. I don't support violence at all, and I abhor it. Uh, but I do believe that citizens have an obligation to engage and do what they can to avoid this intimidation. Coming from Cuba, knowing what it was like or continues to be, I understand it very graphically and feel it very deeply. If you see people uh, sitting around those drop boxes like I, they're doing in Miami, you know, take a video, go to a police station in that neighborhood and spend the time to explain to the police what's going on and demand that they act. Write down the officers that you spoke with. If they don't do anything, go to your local radio, go to your local TV. In other words, you have an obligation. If, you don't have an obligation, but maybe a responsibility to try to avoid this intimidation. But you can't do it by just sitting down and watching TV. You've got to actually, if you're going to go to a Dropbox to vote and you see these people standing there, take a video. Take it to a police station. Do the things that I recommend. Because unless... There's a, a pacifist, but at the same time, active role in, you know, in doing what you can to make sure people pay 
pay consequences, it's just going to get worse. And so that's what I recommend. All right. Now that we are up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what we're watching. Molly, why don't you lead off for us? Um, Maybe going back to some of the discussion in the second segment, I think, and sort of looking out over what we just discussed in the third, I would maybe just tell people to take a look at a couple things on their own. One is um, in the past week, uh, there was a piece published in The Federalist uh, outlining a vision for an extremely dystopian authoritarian America, which very much talks about this Leninist rule by extreme minority strategy um, in a way that is super terrifying if you actually read it. I mean, they openly say we should take our radicalized and we should call ourselves radicals. We should, uh, you know, use our 15% crazy radical extremist views that we know the rest of the country doesn't agree with to take over all the institutions and never give up control of them again, period. That was followed by some Peter Thiel, you know, protege writing a piece about how what America really needs is a monarchy. And like, I mean, I don't even know where to start with these things when this is the money and the ideological base that is fueling the pull to the right for the Republicans. And these are groups that are saying, we're not Republicans anymore. We're radical takeover the country ends. Um, but you really should read these things on your own and the, the ideological base that they're putting into them. We should hearken back to the pilgrims. There should be no divorce in America. We should have traditional Christian values um, that are oh, so extreme that like literally you, they're proto-constitution values, right? Like they, they pre-exist before there was ever a constitution or human rights. And like, this is what they're talking about. And there are people funding this. Um, and you need to take this seriously. The point that, that um, Al and Mike both just made, um, which is, this is not the time to observe what is happening. Find a way to do a thing. Whatever the thing is, talk to your neighbors, go out and volunteer, canvas for somebody, even for one afternoon. Um, democracy is a vibrant living thing or it dies. And all of us have a role to play right now in shouting down these crazy radical extremists who are not representative of the views of the vast majority of Americans. And I think every morning we just need to wake up and tell ourselves this, that like the community that is actually America is not the crazy fucking people, excuse my language, but it is the people who just want to have a good life, but be decent people and live under the framework of laws that we have spent so long to develop. And the point that Mike made before, which is, we are a country that finds ourselves and defines ourselves in moments of extreme adversity and how we confront those and fix those problems ourselves. We don't need outside intervention. We don't need a new constitution. We just need to like sit down and do the homework and figure out what we're going to be as a country to confront the thing we know we did wrong and got wrong before. That is how we define the next thing that comes. And you want to be a part of that. You don't want to be the person when your grandkids ask you, what were you doing? in this period in America, <clears throat> you don't want to be the person who says, I don't know, is at home on Twitter. You want to be the person who was at a march. You want to be the person who volunteered. You want to be the person who <clears throat> was out there putting your skin in the game because we all need to think that way right now. And a way to motivate you, uh, I would give you one item to sort of look at. It's a very short book. You can do the audio book, which I think is less than three hours while you're running errands or driving back and forth to the airport with someone. Um, but it's a book called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. 
um, who is known as a war correspondent uh, as much as anything, um, but is a really thoughtful, um, like he just puts things together in a fascinating way. And this book he wrote, I think in like 2017 called Tribe, it, it looks at societal structures, uh, the evolutionary framework of how society kind of happened, why we feel so displaced and adrift uh, as military veterans, as normal functioning citizens in a society now. And I think it really helps you think through, uh, in many ways, both as an individual, what you should be doing and what leadership should look like from all of us. Um, Like I said, it's short. You can do it over Thanksgiving while you're running around doing whatever driving or travel you have to do. Um, but I would encourage you to listen to it or read it um, uh, and sort of try to take some inspiration from uh, from some of that, some of the thought structure that goes into that, because the fundamental point is about it is communities on which uh, we survive and require uh, energy to, to survive, essentially, um, what that's going to look like in a modern era. Uh, so I would give you those things. And I'm sorry that was so long, but I just think... Be aware of the actual threat and then do something about it are the two bookends to this month that I would give you. <laughs> so good. So good, Molly. Um, Al, what do you got? Well, I got Twitter and uh, the, <laughs> the Elon Musk buyout. And how will that turn out? Uh, you know, social media has become such a significant, important component of American life. And when Molly rightfully talks about tribe, I mean, there's no better definition of tribal behavior than going over what's going on in in Twitter. And so, you know, an owner like Elon Musk, uh, who has expressed opinions that are a little over the top, in my opinion, taking over an institution that has the potential to be so positive or so destructive the behavior of Twitter and its ownership to me is going to be uh, something significant to look into because it can well be as defining a moment in political persuasion as we've had in a while. I think that's absolutely right. I would love to have a bigger conversation about that with you. Um, Mike, what do you got? I'm watching the spectacular collapse of Kanye West um, largely because in many ways, number of observers are pointing out he's sort of normalized um, anti-Semitism again. Um, and again, I'm, I'm glad he's being, you know, canceled or shouted down or removed um, and being disassociated with and disaffiliated with. But to watch the outburst of anti-Semitism that came out within 48 hours of when he was starting to make some of these really over-the-top comments. Incidentally, not, you know, not within a week of Tucker Carlson having him on the show and saying that this he was absolutely brilliant and people needed to watch. But just the, the rank, vile anti-Semitism that is not just um, casually discussed, it's, it's thoughtfully, uh, you know, uh, uh, puts together in, in this guy's mind. And it's, 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 he's, he's, he's clearly growing comfortable with becoming a propagandist for this type of ideology. And you just never think that it's going to happen in 2022. But I would remind everybody again, it's not coming. It's already here. And, and we need to be, we need to be vigilant. We need to be focused and we need to watch um, what a lot of these opinion leaders and celebrities are doing because 
this is this is really dangerous ground. All right, gang. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to do a shot chaser on climate. First, we'll look at the effectiveness of all these recent climate activism stunts, and then the voters ranking climate change among their top issue. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Mike? On Twitter, at Madrid underscore Mike. And Al? At Al dash Cardness. And Molly? I am at Molly McHugh on Twitter, um, or greatpower.us is my newsletter. And we'll also put a link to that fundraiser to round out the balance and get that gear on its way to the politicology. Really, like some, there's a whole unit in Ukraine that is absolutely ecstatic that they're going to get coats, uh, which I know sounds small, but um, knowing that knowing these guys and that we can put a face on them, you should feel really good about that. Good job, family. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet. We'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.